You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the darknet, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Research Saturday. I'm Dave Bittner, and this is our weekly conversation with researchers and analysts tracking down threats and vulnerabilities and solving some of the hard problems of protecting ourselves in a rapidly evolving cyberspace. Thanks for joining us. And now, a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks, and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals. Confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Since the fingerprint space became something that the everyday home user was involved in, there's been a lot of uh, fear, uncertainty, and doubt around it. That's Craig Williams. He's head of Talos Outreach at Cisco. The research we're discussing today is titled Fingerprint Cloning, Myth or Reality? You know, we've seen lots of reports around people being able to defeat Touch ID But we haven't really seen any that really laid down all the methodologies and the way that the samples were collected and how long it took and how effective they were across multiple vendors. And so when we approached this project, the thing that we were wondering is let's assume a worst case scenario. You know, my team travels all the time, going around the world, giving lectures at security conferences. And so we thought, well, what happens if you have a mobile device with you that's secured with a fingerprint-based authentication system? And when you're going through customs, passport controller someone would like your phone for a while Hmm. you know like is it feasible for that security to be defeated or do you have nothing to worry about you know what actually is the threat model that you should be worried about right right so how did you get started where did you begin 
taluses, it's fingers and everything. We look at hardware from everyone and anything, anything uh-huh. from a mobile device to, you know, large, expensive medical devices to very specialized ICS equipment. So it was very much in our, uh, our arc of interest. Mm. And, you know, I, I think really one of the main things that drew me to this is it's not often that we get to do security research that benefits the home user, right? Mm. How often do we get to tell your non-technical friends or your parents or whoever, hey, you know what? you don't need to worry about something. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when those rare opportunities present themselves, we would like to be there and we would like to be there with evidence and facts. Yeah, fair enough. Well, um, let's go through your process here. How did you, uh, how did you begin by sort of taking a, the lay of the land of the different types of fingerprint technologies that are out there? Well, really the first thing we did is we looked at the problem space, right? So, you know, at a high level what is a fingerprint? You know, what are the systems available to duplicate it? And then what are the systems available to replicate it? And then what technologies exist to prevent you from doing that? When you look at it, we're actually to a point from a technological standpoint where 3D printing is right on the cusp of making fingerprint-based authentication questionable, Hmm. right? And what I mean by that specifically is if you look at a fingerprint, you know, just at a physical level, You know, most fingerprint ridges are a couple hundred microns across. For the budget for this project, we didn't want it to be something outrageous, right? And we obviously could have funded it heavily and had amazing results. But we said, you know, what is the average, let's call it motivated, but perhaps not nation state actors budget going to be? And so Mm -hmm. we thought a few thousand dollars was in the ballpark. And so we looked at spending about $2,000 for the entire project. Um, And so when you look at the printers available to the home user in that space that are the highest resolution possible and really produce the results we want, you end up looking at the 3D printers that uh, basically use IR to cure a medium and you've got to have a wash station for it uh, and it prints in layers, you know, not incredibly dissimilar from like the filament based ones I'm sure most people are aware of but really just a a twist on the technology over to using, um, you know, light to effectively cure the material. Hmm. And and that's where you get the precision that you need to be able to reproduce something as uh, like a fingerprint. The resolution is actually quite a bit higher. Uh, Now Hmm. I want to be sure that we pair that with the other reality of this, right? For those of you involved in 3d printing, we all know that uh, what we want to print and what comes out is not always what we would have liked to have come out. (laughs) Uh, And and what I mean by that is often you get like a little imperfection. And, you know, if I'm building a plastic toy for the children or, you know, a container doesn't matter so much. If I'm building, you know, a piece of PPE for a hospital employee to protect their face, like a face shield, doesn't matter if it has a little bump on the side. But if I'm making a mold for a fingerprint, it matters. And so this is really where a lot of the effort came in. You know, the cost from just a cost of goods perspective was low, relatively speaking. But from a time investment standpoint and from an expertise standpoint, it was very high. Uh, It took weeks and multiple, multiple, multiple attempts to get good molds to use for this. Uh, I think at one point... Paul mentioned uh, dozens of attempts. You'll notice if you look at the blog post on talusintelligence.com, we actually have a picture of the bin of rejects. And it's yeah, it's a reasonable size. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, let's go through the various types of technology that uh, the device manufacturers are using 
to enable this functionality? Well, what's out there? Well, uh, so at, at a really high level, we have the basic fingerprint scanning technology, right? You just put your finger on a sensor and it magically works. Now, under the covers, there's a lot of different ways that the devices do that. And we, you know, iterate through those in the post and discuss how they work. And what I think is really interesting about this is the false sense of security some people had, right? Um, hmm. Now, you know, there's a couple of different kinds of light sensors that people can use and ultrasonic sensors just to read the ridges. But one of the requirements that a lot of scanners had was a capacitance sensor, right? To try and detect that real meaty person behind it that was conductive, right? Mm, mm -hmm. um, and so through our trial and error, we had to try lots of different materials to make the fake print, right? So we 3D printed a mold and then used that mold to create a print. And that's the process that was incredibly error prone and took a significant amount of trial and error to find the right type of substance to use. And that's where uh, you will notice we had uh, good luck with, um, I believe it was fabric glue for the mold and plasticine yeah. for the actual print itself. Yeah, it's a fascinating process. And uh, so I suppose when you're, well, you're printing a, a negative of the actual fingerprint so that when the mold comes out, that represents the real fingerprint. Right. Um, and so in the case of the capacitance sensor, what we ended up being able to do is basically, I, I mean, you know, it's Mission Impossible style, simply put it over our actual finger and then use that to register a read on the device. Oh, interesting. So you still have that that meaty goodness of the actual uh, fleshy human that uh, gives the, the reader what it's looking for. Right. And if you read a lot of papers on biometric security, a lot of people thought that that would have been something that was much more difficult to defeat. And so I think that's why it's so valuable to do this type of research. Not that we think vendors are trying to mislead people, but because they didn't think of testing it like that. You know, it's, it's just like software development, right? You have your software, you have your QA test cases, your test cases pass. You know, you think you've caught all the corner cases, but then along comes somebody else with a new idea and all of a sudden they can find issues that perhaps you missed. And this is very much the same thing. What about the actual collection of the fingerprints themselves? What, what was involved there? Well, so that's actually a really fun one. Uh, we had a couple different methods of collection, right? The very first one we wanted to talk about was uh, direct collection. And without picking on any specific vendor, you know, I think <laughs> lots of people are aware that when, you know, certain mobile devices are prototyped, the employees test them. And they may run around town with them and perhaps even engage in recreational activities with these mobile devices that may be secured with a biometric-based authentication. And so, you know, for a direct collection case, we wanted to think, well, what happens if someone is, let's say, completely pliable? Uh, you can view it as them being willing to help you or them being unconscious and you just grab their finger. So direct collection of the print and then try to use that. And so that was method one. Um, the second one was really what we envisioned happening, you know, during the scenario I mentioned at the beginning of if you're going through customs, right? And so customs in a lot of countries will take a fingerprint scan. Uh, you know, I think they use that now for global entry in the U.S. And so we thought, well, if you take it using that method, what's possible to build from a reproduction standpoint using what that's recording? And mm. so that was really our second method. And the third approach was just via a third-party object, right? Um, find a thing that somebody left behind. And so I think this is really what's important for people to realize. 
that from my perspective, the security provided by a fingerprint is not too dissimilar from that provided by like a social security number, right? It's not secret. It might be unique-ish, right? Uh, but it is not really something that you should rely on for 100% security. Instead, I think you can view it as providing good enough security. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my take when, when, when Apple came out with Touch ID, I think we saw a lot of people adopting it, it using it because it was so easy to use and fast and, and relatively frictionless. And in my mind, that was the transition. What we what we captured there were a lot of people who weren't using any password at all on their phone because it was a pain to put the password, you know, the, the number in. Now, all of a sudden, all these people are using something, even if it's not perfect. Well, and that's why I want to make sure that when we discuss this, the way that we frame it is something that everyone walks away with. What we've proven here is that biometric authentication is not perfect, right? It's not a magic bullet. You're not secure from super hackers or, you know, amazing criminals, but very much like a front door lock or a home security system, it meets the threat model from most users, right? If you're comfortable with an off-the-shelf door lock at Home Depot and you have your computers in your house, you're fine, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Alternatively, if you have, you know, let's say uh, things on your phone, intellectual property that you keep locked in a vault, number one, you shouldn't be using biometric security <laughs> Number two, mm -hmm. you should perhaps go into your settings menu right now and switch over to password-based authentication and turn on multi-factor authentication. You know, think of it like using a home security system to defend against a world-famous cat burglar or a nation state. You know, um, any security system, no matter what you pay, is not going to be a large impediment to those groups, to those well-funded groups. Uh, on the other hand, for your typical average everyday person, it's more than adequate. It will keep out criminals, it will secure your device, and the ease of use is through the roof. Yeah. Now, having gone through this exercise and learning what you all learned, um, how difficult would it be for you to do this now knowing what you know? So the actual process, we understand, we know how to do it, uh, but the trial and error involved in getting usable prints molded and reproduced would still be there. Now, it's possible that if we invested a significant amount of money, this could be streamlined, but I think that the barrier to entry is still high enough that this is not something the everyday user needs to be concerned about. Now, I do wanna be transparent here. If you look at our results, there seems to be a very clear choice that was made during the design of these sensors on various manufacturers. Hmm. Right. So think about the way fingerprints live in, in this world. Well, okay, not today, but like three months ago. Think about the day <laughs> your fingerprints live. You know, uh, you're at work, you're hitting a keyboard, you go to the gym, you're rubbing off your fingerprints. Maybe after work, you dig a hole. Uh, and then yeah. all of a sudden, you've got to unlock your phone to say, get in your car. Right. Maybe you have a Tesla. Well, your fingerprint has been ground off at the gym, ground off digging a hole you know, potentially rubbed away at work. And so what you have is a reduced quality compared to the one that perhaps you set in the morning when you woke up. Mm. And so what these vendors have to choose from is basically a bar of accuracy versus ease of use. And I think we can all agree that while fingerprint security is important, the main draw of biometrics and the reason that so many people are dependent on it 
is because it is so easy to use. You know, mm-hmm. the first time I have to start scanning my fingerprint three, four, five times to unlock my phone, I'm just going to go back to a password because it'll work the first time and it's going to take the same amount of time for me to key in like 20 characters as scan, wait, scan, wait, scan, wait. You know, one of the things that caught my eye in uh, your blog post here is how much your success was dependent on the the mold getting the scale right. Like that seemed to be a, a really uh, one of the sensitive elements here of having success. Absolutely. You know, the mold process itself, I think, is the one that was really the biggest hurdle for us. It is one of those things, though, that people do need to realize that as 3D printing technology advances, as there are automated ways to produce these, this process will get easier, right? And so I think it's important that we realize, you know, think about how old fingerprints are, right? They've been used for identification purposes since, oh man, what, like <laughs> Long the time, yeah. 1920s, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. the, the Al Capone prohibition era. Uh, mm-hmm. And so for that to work today in 2020 is amazing. But I think it's important that, we know when this 3D printing and scanning and home manufacturing technology is going to reach a level where this is something that we shouldn't be relying on as much. And so, you know, when I look at our research at a high level, I think the takeaway is simply this, you know, right now, 3D printing technology is vastly improved. Right now, it is possible to defeat most fingerprint-based authentication systems using 3D printing technology available to the home user. Uh, It's important to note, however, that it is not easy. It is not something a typical teenager could go grind out in their garage in one afternoon. It will require trial and error. It will require a financial investment. And it will require effort to go do that. And then it will require effort to obtain a fingerprint that's been enrolled on the device. Uh, So it's not easy. You know, for most users, fingerprint-based authentication is still perfectly viable from a security standpoint. However, (laughs) if you have valuable intellectual property on your device that a motivated criminal may want to obtain, you should not be using fingerprint-based authentication at this point. You should be looking at using, you know, passwords in accordance to best practices with multi-factor authentication. That's Craig Williams from Cisco Talos. The research we discussed today was titled Fingerprint Cloning, Myth or Reality? We'll have a link in the show notes. And now a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills all using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. CyberBit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com cyberwire.
The CyberWire Research Saturday is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.